Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you give us everything that we need. But we thank you that even sickness is not something that separates us from your love, nor does it separate us from our ability to, to build one another up, to, to meet together. We thank you that we live in an era of technology when uh, during times of COVID we weren't able to meet and we were still able to, to declare your word and have fellowship, even though at times that fellowship took place in different rooms. And we pray that um, some of the elements of using a video, which is not ideal, we pray that you might grant me to see and know the hearts of the people who are gathered here this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to us uh, through your eternal word, which gives life, which shapes and forms us to become more like your son. Uh, so do your good work within all of us through our time together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to begin with yet another confession. It seems to be the month of confessions. And again, like the previous confession, this is not going to catch you off guard. I can be a little bit socially awkward. Let's just get it out there and be honest. Now, I wish I was one of those people who was a master of conversation. People who could just have a natural and great conversation with anybody who came along. Now, we did have someone who was like that in our church family. Those who remember Carl Pumper. He was like that. And you'll notice that in life, there are certain people that people will naturally gravitate to because they're, they're warm, they're, they're welcoming. It could even be something about the way in which they speak. You, they feel valued. There's like a sense of it being a blessing to be in the presence of those people. And Jesus was certainly someone who people were drawn to and loved being in his presence. And it wasn't purely just because of who he was. We've seen him introduced in Mark as being the Saviour, the Messiah, the Anointed King, the Son of God, God himself. But in addition to his identity, people have flocked to him in crowds because they say, we have never heard anybody teach with an authority like his. Even the scribes had never taught with an authority like Jesus. As they see his miracles, his healing of the sick and casting out of evil spirits, they say, we've never seen anyone do the things which this Jesus does. And so even from as early back as chapter one, wherever Jesus went, the crowds would follow. Now, while we might consider that to be success in the eyes of the world today, Jesus often found that to be a nuisance. It was often a hindrance to the very reason that he came for. And today, as we look at this passage in Mark chapter 3, verses 9 through to 17, we see two separate events where people are drawn to Jesus. We see the crowds which are drawn to Jesus in verses 7 to 12, and we see the disciples 
who are drawn to Jesus in 13 to 19. We see a people who are desperate for Jesus in 12, 7 to 12, who are drawn in to be sent out. That's the disciples in verses 13 to 19. And we conclude with that famous phrase from the old El Paso ad, why not have both? So let's begin with a people who are desperate for Jesus. Now to put things into context, what has happened immediately before the passage we're looking at this morning is that people have taken Jesus and his disciples to task for picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath. And in response to that, Jesus has declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Not only declaring himself to have the authority to interpret scripture, but to say he is the master, the Lord of the Sabbath itself. And after having put people offside with that comment, they then all go gather together in the synagogue where there is a man with a withered hand. Not an emergency by any means, but still Jesus challenges the people who are there. Is it right to do good or bad on the Sabbath? And so he heals this man with a withered hand. And we saw at the end of that passage that the Pharisees had joined with the Herodians in their plots to have Jesus killed. Now, during that time, we presume there were probably lots of others gathered there at the synagogue waiting and wanting to be healed. Yet Jesus withdraws. He withdraws to buy the sea to be with his disciples. Now, even though we've seen in the Gospel of Mark a lot of time where Jesus is addressing or involved with the crowds, We've seen him take time out to specifically spend time with sinners, the people that the Jewish religious leaders that time would have had nothing to do with. But researchers estimate, and I have no idea upon what basis how they come to these figures, that Jesus' life and ministry was probably spent about 70% with his disciples. Now, we don't want to make too much of a point of that because it is extremely difficult to kind of measure something in terms of in terms of that but even from now even in the early days of Jesus ministry being in isolation or seclusion was no longer an option even though he'd gone beside the sea to spend time with the disciples crowds flocked to be with him now if you're like me geography probably isn't your strong point and if you like, probably most of us, biblical geography is definitely not a strong point. We read through parts of the Bible and we see all these town names and we think, I don't know what they are. I hope they're not important because I wouldn't have a clue where they are or what the people are like there. And I think there are a lot of times when we miss the gravity of what is being communicated because we don't know where these places are. We don't know who are the people who are from those places. Like sure, we can read things here about Galilee, Jerusalem, and Judea. We think, yeah, no, that, that's all familiar territory. But then we read things like Idumea, the areas beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, and we think, I wouldn't have a clue where that is. That could be Bandalagua for all I know. 
Incidentally, Bundalagua was a town between Mafra, where we used to live, and Sale, where um, Samuel and Laura are now living. So let me give you a little bit of a map so you can see this area that we're speaking about. Firstly, Ijemea is some 190 kilometres south of where Jesus was. To put that in terms that we understand, if Jesus was in Toowoomba, these people were coming down from Tenterfield in New South Wales, 190 kilometres. And you got Sidon to the north, some 80 k's to the north. So I got out my Google Maps and the closest equivalent to that would be Wootle, if that's how you pronounce it. Forgive me, I don't know my Queensland town names yet. I'm still figuring things out in that regard as well. Now, whatever it is, that is a massive geographical area for people to be coming to Jesus. You think, in a time when you do not have cars, to be travelling 190 kilometres to see Jesus, there is something important, something urgent about this seeking of Jesus. However, it's not just the distance that they're travelling that's important. What's equally important, if not so more important, is the diversity of the people who are coming to Jesus. Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, some of those ones that we're familiar with, areas which are predominantly Jewish. Then you've got Idumea down to the south and the areas beyond the Jordan, which are kind of a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. But then Tyre and Sidon were an area that was predominantly Gentile. Yet people from Jews, mixed and Gentile are all desperately seeking after Jesus. And we see one of the, the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 6, where he speaks of this servant who we now know to be Jesus as one who would be a light to the nations. And we see this starting to transpire. Even though in the Old Testament the nation of Israel were called to be a light to the nations, we see Jesus come as the fulfillment, as the perfect and the new Israel. But why did people come from such great distance, from such a diversity of backgrounds? Well, we see that in verses 8 to 10. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, and all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. They came because of what he was doing, not because of what he was saying or what he was teaching. And we see specifically what he was doing. We see the crowds who were people who were sick, who were pressing in on him because they were so desperate and so assured that if they were to touch him, they would be healed. And if you think that's a, a sign of them, people being so desperate for Jesus, that they would be like that. It even intensifies when you see the literal meaning of this word that is translated to have pressed around him. It says literally they fell upon Jesus. They were so desperate, they, they threw themselves at Jesus, believing he was their only hope. He was the one who would be the answer to their deepest needs, their most desperate things they needed to have sorted out. They were right that Jesus was 
the answer to their most desperate, deepest longings and needs. But much like the paralytic we saw in chapter 2, where the men were unable to bring him to Jesus, so they thought it was so urgent, they ripped out the roof and they started to lower him down. And when we expected Jesus to say to that man, Son, your sicknesses are healed. Jesus addresses his primary and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then in order that the people might know that Jesus had authority to forgive sins, he says, take up your bed and walk. And immediately he walked and all of the people were amazed. Now, Jesus, who loved his COVID safe plan, wanted to make sure he's doing social distancing, organizes for a boat to be made ready for him. Now, I know we know it's not a COVID safe plan or, or social distancing. But we've seen in the priority of Jesus, he didn't come purely to heal or to cast out demons. He says, I have come that I might preach, that I might proclaim the good news. And so he has this boat on handy so that people wanting to come and touch him and throw themselves at him to be healed, that he might continue to be able to teach unhindered by the people. But note the contrast between those who were diseased and those who were oppressed by demons. Those who were diseased fell upon Jesus. Yet those who were possessed by demons fell before Jesus. They did not touch him. And everywhere you see this expression to fall before somebody in the New Testament, every single time, it is an act of an inferior expressing homage to one who is superior. Where we see Jesus as the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, expressed here in this occasion, his authority over the demons. But in Matthew's account, he also tells us that everybody who was healed, both those with diseases, both those with demons, and Matthew even goes on to say that this event was the fulfillment of some of the prophecies written by Isaiah. That he would be the one who would bring justice to the Gentiles. From Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. He is the one in whom the Gentiles would find their hope in Isaiah 42.4 and 11.10. And as these demons fall down before Jesus, they cry out, you are the Son of God. Now, as they say you are the Son of God, they don't just mean you are an angel, as the term Son of God does get used at times. That way in the Bible, it gets used of people. He's not saying that he's just a person. No, they recognize that he is the eternal Son of God, the one who's been in the unique relationship with the Father from all eternity, the one who is God. The demons knew exactly who he was. They knew more about who he was than Jesus' own disciples knew about who Jesus was. And Jesus commands them as the one who is superior to them not to tell anybody. Not only because it's not good public relations to have demons doing your marketing material, but it was also 
perceived that the messianic age would be a time of great spiritual warfare when, when, when the evil spirits would be confronted and cast out. And Jesus didn't want to add to the, the already false expectations that people had of what a Messiah would be like. But also this, when you look forward down to verse 22, we see a time when people are actually accusing Jesus of working in teamship with demons to carry out his ministry. And he certainly doesn't want to validate that idea which people have. So whether the people who were coming to Jesus, whether the thing that desperately drove them to him was a little bit misguided, you can't discard the fact that they were desperate. They were desperate to be with him. They might not have correctly perceived their greatest need. They thought their greatest need was their illness or, or their demons that were affecting their life. But we do know our greatest need. We need to be restored to God. We need Jesus. And if a people who don't correctly know their greatest need are so desperately throwing themselves upon Jesus, how much more those who have come to know how much we desperately need him should be seen to be a people who, who are de desperate for him, who are zealous for him, who depend upon him in all things with great vigor. The crowds were drawn to Jesus, but also the disciples were drawn to Jesus. They were a people who were drawn in to be sent out. And this section begins again with Jesus withdrawing from the crowds. Jesus goes up to a mountain and called those whom he desired and they came to him. So Jesus had some whom he wanted, whom he desired to be with him and all whom he desired and called to him came to be with him. We've already seen this happen in the past. We saw it with Peter and his brother Andrew, a fisherman. Jesus says, follow me. They just immediately leave their fishing stuff, not knowing much about Jesus, but they follow him. We see the same too with another two fishermen, brothers, James and John. We've seen it with Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, leaving his booth behind and just following Jesus, abandoning everything else. Those whom Jesus desires, he calls, they follow. It's what you would call the irresistible call of God. Now, you and I, we're not Jesus. We're not Jesus in the sense we can't just call people to follow Jesus and expect there to be 100% success rate. In fact, anyone who has called people and pleaded with them that may, may follow Jesus, that they might repent of their sin, turn and place their trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection, we know that nowhere near 100%. But the reason why we don't know get 100% is we are not privy to the mind of God, to those whom he has desired, to those whom he has called. But what we do know, what we have been privy to know, is that Jesus does call a people to himself. So in response, we go out, we call people to follow Jesus, 
knowing that out there are a people whom Jesus has chosen and has desired, who is calling them, who will follow when they are called. Now to come back to Mark, for the first time here we see the twelve. The twelve disciples, sometimes called the disciples, sometimes called the twelve apostles. In these verses, verses 14 and 15, the word disciples is not there. And in a lot of the manuscripts, that section that's in brackets speaking about them also being named apostles is not included in there either. But it says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named the apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, there's a number of things to highlight from those verses. Firstly, it says, he appointed the twelve. But the word that's translated appointed literally means he made the twelve. So there seems to be more going on here than a selection or an assignment to a particular role rather than Jesus making them something that they were designed to carry out. Now this term disciples that we often hear used speaks of learners. That's what it means. It literally means a people who are learners. But in that culture, the disciples or learners would be people who would learn in the presence of the master. Not just only learning facts and information, they would learn alongside him by being taught, by watching what they did, by doing things alongside with the master, getting feedback from the master and, and how they are going at doing these things, and then they would be sent out to do that work. And then apostles are, is, is what that means, that an apostle is one who is sent out for a specific mission or purpose. But why is it that Jesus, knowing there's a great work to be done, calls or makes 12. Well, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the nation of Israel, had the 12 forefathers. And it appears here that Jesus is forming a new people of God, with forming with a new 12. Who would? Because now in the New Testament, the people of God is not known by their relationship to Abraham, but rather by their relationship to Jesus, who is being made known by the twelve apostles. And as Mark speaks about these twelve, he speaks about the reasons why he appointed or why he made the twelve. And there's threefold reasons given. Firstly, that they might be with him. We often overlook this fact. The primary goal of discipleship in Jesus' mind was that they might be with him. Discipleship in Jesus' mind was not something about catching up for a coffee every, every month or every couple of months. It wasn't about running a six one-hour seminars over a number of weeks. His first priority is that they would be with him, that they would learn him. They would learn by hearing him teach. They would learn by watching him do. They would learn by doing things with him. They would learn by hearing him give them feedback on the work in which they were doing. 
Their being with him wasn't just to build their knowledge. It wasn't to give them a certificate of, of achievement at the end. But they were being equipped to become like him, to be sent out to do the things that he was doing. Because Jesus knew that he was, wasn't returning, that he was returning to the Father very soon, and that he was going to establish a church upon which the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The kingdom would go out to all nations. And in three years, he spent time with these disciples, preparing them to send them out. So his first was to be with them, and secondly, to send out for two different things. To send them out to preach or proclaim. That was the primary reason that Jesus had for his own ministry. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 38. And not surprisingly, that is the primary mission that he has given to those whom he's sending out, that they might be a proclaiming people. God's children are never just the recipients of his good news, but they are designed to become the proclaimers of his good news. To use the language of Romans chapter 10, how can people believe in the one that they haven't heard of? And how will they hear unless someone is sent? And how will they know unless someone brings the good news to them and they respond and hear it in faith? So they be with him to proclaim and they are sent out also to have authority to cast out demons. Just as Jesus cast out demons because of his compassion upon the people, as a sign of his authority over, over the evil powers of this world, but also as the one who is going to put them to open shame upon the cross. So also Jesus' disciples do the same. Not only to show that Jesus has authority to do these things, but he has authority to give authority to others to carry out that work. And in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 10, adds a fourth one to say they were also sent out to heal the sick. Now, as Mark goes on to speak about these 12 men and list them by name, these ones whom Jesus has appointed or Jesus has made. And there are four lists like this in the New Testament. There's this one here. There's one in Matthew 10 verses 2 to 4, Luke chapter 6 verses 14 to 16, and Acts chapter 1 verses 13, I suppose right through to verse 26, where we see Matthias being appointed in the place of Judas. But if you look up these four lists, you'll notice that the names are not always identical. That's because in that culture, people would often have a number of names by which they were known. We've already seen Peter, who is often called Simon or Cephas. We've seen Levi, who was called as the tax collector, but in the same account in other, other Gospels, he's described as being Matthew. So they are the same 12 men, but they are sometimes described given some of their other different names. And there's no lack of theories, people saying that oh, these names are ordered in this particular way to signify these particular things. That could be true, they might not be true, but I'll make two things which are very clear in all of those four lists. In every single one of those four lists, the first three names are always Peter, James, and John. 
And we shouldn't be surprised by that because as we see Jesus' ministry, they are the three that Jesus often takes for exclusive missions or gives exclusive insights. They were part of the, the very much the inner circle of the disciples. And the other thing which is consistent to all of those four lists is at the end of those lists is Judas Iscariot with the comment that he was the one who would betray Jesus. But more important than the way things are ordered is who? Who are the people who, who formulate this list of the 12 whom Jesus desired, appointed and made? Well, firstly, none, as far as we know, had any role in the Jewish leadership at the time. None of them even had any degree of public status, as far as we're aware at the time. And secondly, what we do see is what they are is ordinary, everyday blokes whom Jesus has chosen and called. Varying degrees of status within society. And as we'll see as we observe their lives, people who are faulty. They have mistakes. They have weaknesses. They do the wrong thing. They say the wrong things. They're just like you and I. In terms of their status, we've got four at least who are fishermen. Again, in terms of their status in society, they were perceived to be unclean. You've got Matthew or Levi, a tax collector. And tax collectors, as we saw, were considered the, the most atrocious of the unclean. If a tax collector touched your house, your whole house was unclean. The Jewish traditions at the time said, nay, the Bible says you can't lie. But they made an exception. You can lie to a tax collector. You got Simon, a zealot, part of a military group who were rising up, forming war against the Romans. And yet, as you watch their lives, they had their weaknesses. They had their faults. Even Peter, who is at the top of every single one of those lists, when Jesus speaks about how he must suffer and die, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, may it never be. You've got Philip who, after all his time spent with Jesus, he says to Jesus' own face, show us the Father, and that will be enough. You've got Thomas, one who's been with Jesus all of this time. When Jesus is raised from the dead, we see initially that none of the disciples believed that Jesus would actually be raised from the dead. A shocking truth, especially when Jesus had told them uh, in his life that that would take place. But even when all of the other disciples had seen Jesus risen from the dead, he says, no, unless I put my hand in his side, my finger in the holes in his hands, I will not believe. They doubted. None of them expected Jesus to be risen on that famous first Easter Sunday. They failed in many ways. They, they didn't trust. They, they showed at times that things that we thought were very clear, they didn't understand. We can sympathize them with them in so many ways because they have the same struggles that you and I have because they were ordinary, everyday people. But they were the ones whom Jesus desired, the ones whom Jesus chose, and the one who Jesus made to be exactly what he needed them to be. And when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see a resurgence in their boldness 
and in their faithfulness. Sure, they still made mistakes on occasions. But Jesus does not need those who are most gifted in the eyes of the world. He takes the ordinary, the mundane, and he makes them everything that they need to be to fulfill the role that he has given to them. He continues to expand his kingdom and impact the world through ordinary, everyday people. So we've seen two passages. We see crowds who are drawn to Jesus, who are desperate for Jesus. We see the disciples who are drawn to Jesus in order to be sent out. And we could ask the question, well, which one does he desire us to be? Well, the answer to that question, why not both? It would be easy to say, let's be like the second one. Because the first, they were, they were desperate for Jesus, sure, but they were desperate just to have their life made easier. To have God deal with the, the uncomfortable, difficult things with their life. Why not be like the second ones who are drawn near to God, spend time with Jesus to be sent out? Sure, you're right. The, the first group, the crowds, they were desperate for Jesus and they had misguided goals. They were wrong in their perception of what their most desperate need was. But they were right in their perception that Jesus could, was able and was willing to solve and give them the deepest longings and needs that they actually have. Brothers and sisters, regardless of where you are with Jesus, whether you're still checking him out to find out what he's all about, whether you've been walking with him for years, you desperately need him. If you haven't yet come to a point of turning from your sin, repenting of your sin, turning and trusting that Jesus bore your punishment on the cross, and rose again in victory over sin, death, and Satan. Your greatest need is to be reconciled to God, to turn from your sin, turn to him to receive the life and forgiveness that he offers. It's so important to God that he sent his one and only son into the world to die that cruel death on your behalf, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. He brought him joy and excitement that he would restore sinners to himself. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. But even if you have been a Christian who has been walking with Jesus for many years, you desperately need him. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. To take the language of the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue or so walk in Him. As much as you saw your desperate need for Him as your Saviour, as I certainly did, so continue to depend upon Him, clinging to Him, Desperately seeking him with all of your heart. I desperately need him. 
but do I live as a child who desperately needs him? Who desperately casts himself upon Jesus, knowing apart from him, I can do nothing. I need you in all things. Does that what my life day to day looks like? It concerns me at times, I think, that the world of Christians sometimes has become so familiar and place so much trust in routines or a particular strategy or a particular method that they have forgotten their desperate need for Jesus himself. Because all of the methods, all of the strategy, all of the routines in the world are worth nothing if they are not done in complete and utter dependence upon the one who gives them life. What would it look like for you? What would it look like for me to desperately depend upon him for everything? And as we seek to make disciples, we want to seek to make disciples who will be with Jesus, who will be sent out. And if we want to formulate anything by that in terms of the lives of those who we're discipling, then it needs to be true of us, a people who are desperately being with him, to learn him, to learn about him, to learn to be like him. As, and those who are discipling, they might see modeled before their very eyes a person who is desperate for Jesus, who is desperate and depending upon him in all areas of their life and living with a sense of urgency. When that was the practice, and it was the practice in the early church, as we've read through the book of Acts only just recently over a couple of years, we see the impact that it had on the world. The numbers that were added to the Lord as people sought him with a great sense of urgency. And as God works in us to form in us an urgency, a desperate dependence upon him, a faithful obedience to walk with him to the same extent to which we flung ourselves upon him when we saw our need for a saviour that we see his kingdom grow we would see his kingdom flourish that people would start beginning to talk about the church again in a positive sense where they start to say I know we've said they're irrelevant but there is something going on there that I just can't explain there is something going on in the people whom which they interact with that I just cannot explain might we see a people who are desperate for Jesus to give them the greatest needs, the greatest needs in Christ, happening both inside the church for those who do know him, but also for those who do not yet know him, that they might see and know and chase him with casting upon all abandon, all zeal out of desperation, I need Jesus. That's the world I want to live in. That's the world I want to see around us. That's the culture I want to see here in our church. Heavenly Father, we do need you. Forgive me for how frequently I have lived as though I've got a pretty good handle on things. You are the way the truth and the life, and I am none of the above. 
Lord, help us to turn from our trust in things that we've done before. Help us to turn from our trust in particular methods or strategies. Help us in whatever we do, even the most mundane things of life, to do them with a desperate dependence upon the one who gives us life, who in whom we live and move and have our being, that a people might see the wonderful Saviour, Jesus Christ, living and active through his people and calling a people to himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.